Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss election results in Poland, Ecuador, New Zealand, and Australia. It's all coming up. Hey there, John. How are you? Very good, Ethan. How are you? How was your weekend? It was good. We, we were just talking beforehand about uh, my newfound love of squash. And I take it you're a bit of a player as well. Well, I, I'm not much of a player, but I enjoy it. And I, I bring a good spirit and attitude to it. Let's, <laughs> let's leave it at that. <laughs> That's all you need. That's all you need. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I also mentioned this before, but we have to cue in the, the listeners on this. My legs and glutes, John. <laughs> My legs and my glutes. I'm not offering any comment. You, you can say what you want, but I shall, I shall just nod politely. You're welcome, listeners. So, John, the, the Ides of October, what a time for elections. We had mm. uh, general election voting on Sunday in Poland, Ecuador, New Zealand. There was a major referendum down under where you're from, not uh-huh. to mention uh, a big election in Liberia today on Tuesday. Yeah, which might have been my favorite because being a uh, growing up in the 90s, it featured the footballing legend turned president, George Weyer. Boy, he was a hell of a footballer when I was young. Yeah. Oh, indeed. And John, I looked it up. This is a good one. So there have actually been a few heads of state who have played professional football, soccer. Get this. In 2014... Bolivian President Evo Morales signed a contract with a top flight club while he was still president. Uh, They paid him $200 a year, and he became the oldest active professional soccer player in the world at the time. And had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he was president, I'm sure. (laughs) It's a great fact. It's a great fact. It's it's a real good one. So let's get back to the news. So the the last time we spoke about something... Other than than Israel and Gaza, uh, we were chatting about the Slovakian Mm -hmm. election uh, and that country's Eurosceptical, even Ukraine skeptical turn. uh, Was the same thing at stake in Poland's election this weekend? Yeah, it's tempting to kind of draw that analogy. And I think it's right as far as Euroscepticism goes. I think that that was on the ballot. Uh, on the weekend, but I think Ukraine skepticism is probably a little bit more complex, uh, a little bit of it, but but not as much as Slovakia. Um, I think Polish politics have mostly kind of coalesced around a support for Ukraine. Um, certainly, they were you know a huge supporter early in the war. Um, I think probably stemming from the fact that just there's a, a lot of historical fear of of Russia and, and Russia's designs on that part of the world. Um, but I think you are starting to see some signs um, of Polish frustration with Ukraine. There is a, at the moment, an ongoing dispute over Ukrainian grain. Um, Polish farmers say that's making them less competitive. Right. Um, we talked about during the UN week, Ethan, we talked about the, the remarks about um, from the Polish president where he said, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine's like a drowning person. They'll tow you down under or to t- uh, you know, tow them under with you or something like that. So yeah, that's a pretty incendiary statement. Um, and then I think Poland also suspended transferring arms to Ukraine. So there was this kind of brewing uh, potential for there to be problems. Um, But I think we mentioned it a few weeks ago as well. I thought at the time it was probably political posturing in in the lead up to this election that just happened over the weekend. Um, Kind of an attempt by the ruling Law and Justice Party, who are super right wing, to show their voters that hey, we're tough and we can hold it, we can hold people accountable. You know that kind of stuff. Right, right. We'll we'll stick by Ukraine, but we're not beholden to them. Exactly. So did that did that gambit work? I mean, how did the election turn out? Well, 
No is the short answer. Um, we won't have final results until Tuesday. It's important to note there is a whole complex way that the polls calculate um, the votes, which we are not going to go into, mostly because I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> but it looks like the Law and Justice Party won the battle, so to speak, because they won more votes technically uh, than any other single party. But the opposition parties who've kind of come together in a in a in a block will win the war, to use the analogy, because um, they're projected to win around 250 of the 460 seats in the Polish parliament, which is obviously more than enough to form a government. But it's almost more importantly, it's uh, enough to block the law and justice party from forming a government. Because as I understand it, they will get the first opportunity to try and form a government and then the opposition will now be able to block them. Yeah. So that, that's that's the result. And, and this this could take two months before the opposition gets the chance. So right, there's a yeah, lot. Was, there's a lot to play out here. Yeah, there was that quote from uh, from from a Polish politician. He said, "We hopefully we'll have a government by Christmas or something like that." So that's <laughs> it's, we're, we're in for a ride there. Um, but I think more broadly, even this is like a really kind of I don't want to say shocking, but like a stunning result. Right, like Law and Justice Party has been in power in Poland since 2015. Um, you know, I, th- I don't know that they were favourites, but when 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 a government's been in power for that long, you always kind of back them to stay in power for a little bit longer. Um, but perhaps even more interesting, I think, is that the voter turnout in Poland was seventy four percent, which is by far the highest um, since Poland returned to democracy in nineteen eighty nine. I think that's a pretty good sign, generally, for the health of its uh, democracy. Um, so, you know, I think if the opposition is uh, is able to form government, as we say. Um, it will almost certainly be led by the civic platform party of Donald Tusk, who some listeners may remember was the European Council president uh, from 2014 to 2019. But he was also a former prime minister of Poland before that, from 2017 to two, uh, 2007 to 2014. So he's got a bit of experience in in that role. So former president of the European Council, this sounds like very good news for Europe. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is good news. Um, Contrary to its name, the law, the ruling Law and Justice Party has not been good for law and justice <laughs> in Poland. I think it's fair to say they've rolled back press freedoms um, and some say human rights, and they've helped Hungary's also fairly right wing illiberal leader Viktor Orban uh, stay out of trouble with the EU. Um, so they've kind of been a bit of a thorn in the EU side. I think Tusk will help bring Poland back into more mainstream European traditional values. Um, but you know, I think I think also I'm not I'm not 100 sure that those differences explain what we saw on Sunday. Put another way, I'm not sure that the European question was like the main driving force um, in the Polish election. I, I, I have this sense. I don't know how you feel, but just like incumbents seem to be getting beat everywhere. Um, you know, classically, you would turn to look at economic indicators for that. Inflation's way up across you know a lot of the world. Um, there's obviously the war in Ukraine right next to Poland. That's been very disruptive um, for Europeans. So it's it's a, I think I think it's interesting to say that when things are uncertain, perhaps you want to chuck out the, the, the folks who are in charge because it's not working and, and replace them with someone new. Um, so I think this outcome is significant. I, I just I'm not sure uh, how much we can say that it's Polish people loving Europe more than just an interesting change uh, with many, 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 many reasons. Law and justice party, not good for law and justice. Next, you're going to tell me that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea <laughs> is none of the above. Uh, and and I, I know you won't do that because I I'll, trust I'll, you too I'll, much. I'll, I'll let you live in your, in your literal, hyper-literal world for a little longer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm, we could spend the rest of the episode talking about Poland, but 
there are so many more elections to oh. discuss. So what happened in Ecuador? Four, five thousand miles away. Five thousand miles away. Yeah. Well, um, this race was between Luisa Gonzalez, who is from the leftist citizen revolution movement. Sounds leftist. Um, and Daniel Noboa, who's a 35-year-old businessman. Um, the next presidential election was actually scheduled for 2025, so two years from now. Um, but it moved up uh, after the former president, Guillermo Lasso, dissolved Congress earlier this year, in, in May this year. Um, you know, I think Ecuador's politics, like, like a bunch of South American countries, they've been dominated by sort of left-of-center candidates for much of the last few decades. Um, and Lasso is actually the first conservative president since the early 2000s in Ecuador. Um, but you know we're starting to see that the political alignment is, is shifting on the continent and and in Ecuador as well as they deal with an unprecedented crime crisis. Uh, so on on Sunday, Ecuadorians chose uh, the 35 year old businessman Daniel Noboa by a margin of about 52 to 48. So close, but not super close. Yeah, we we've talked a lot about uh, Ecuador's crime crisis, so mm. our listeners will will know about that. But but what should we know about Mr. Naboa. Yeah, well, I called him a businessman. Um, he's actually the son of Alvaro Naboa, who is the uh, richest man in Ecuador. And interestingly, I love this fact. He owns a massive banana conglomerate, so he made his <laughs> made his money selling bananas, um, which is is kind of nice. <laughs> um, but he he unsuccessfully ran for pre- his dad unsuccessfully ran for president five times between ni- uh, 1998 and and 2013. Um, so, you know, there was some experience in the family of, of running for president uh, and Naboa Jr., the son, not actually called Jr., I should point out, but the young, the younger Naboa campaigned on a, a tough on crime platform, um, including uh, an interesting pledge to send the country's worst criminals to prison ships off the coast, which gets headlines. Um, his opponent, uh, the leftist, on the other hand, she kind of promised to bolster Ecuador's social safety net um, to tackle poverty, you know, as a root cause of these kinds of issues. Right. Um, and you know, that, you know, I think that to a, a lot of our listeners and to many people sounds like a pretty good idea, right? But a lot of voters, I think, in Latin America are kind of getting fed up with these policies that promise to solve the underlying cause of crime and violence, but hasn't seemed to work. Um, and they are, again, I'm generalizing a little bit, but they're kind of moving towards leaders that promise to wage war on gangs and restore, um, you know, order. I also think in this case, um, voters were probably drawn to Nabal because he's talked a lot about the economy. He's smart. He's Western educated. He's vibrant. He's new blood. You know, he's 35, as I mentioned. Even even if his dad is a (laughs) five-time presidential candidate who's the wealthiest man in the country, but I I see your point. I guess he did a pretty good job of convincing people that he's not his dad, but yeah, I think he is seen as new blood um, in the country um, for, you know, your point notwithstanding. Um, But I think the only problem with new blood, obviously, is that Ecuador has huge problems um, and, and, you know, new blood is also technically inexperienced so he's gonna he's got a lot to prove between now and and may 2025 um that he he's the right guy uh, to solve them today's episode is sponsored by patent drop if you love international intrigue you'll love patent drop It's a twice-weekly tech briefing that will keep you on the front lines of innovation. Patent Drop's team of investigative journalists scour the U.S. patent and trademark website to uncover the revolutionary ideas that indicate the direction big tech companies are taking our future. Check out the show notes to learn more. 
All right, welcome back. So it's almost time to go down under, John. But before we do, we've got to stop off in New Zealand, which held its general election this weekend too. They did. New Zealand, the arch enemy. No, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. <laughs> the land, the land of beautiful mountains and, and great rugby and Lord of the Rings. I guess you, you might know them from. And yeah, obviously until very recently, uh, one probably I think maybe the the most famous. Prime Minister in the world, arguably, maybe Jacinda Ardern. Um, certainly, certainly the most famous female leader in the world. I think um, she was kind of a leader. I think you might call um, of the aspirational kind of empathetic left. Um, she, you know, she was very, 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 very good at communication. I think is is it's fair to say. Um, and she led New Zealand, you know, through a couple of crises. Obviously, we had the COVID pandemic, which I think a lot of people think New Zealand did really well through that period. The um, New Zealand was, you know, pretty came out of that pretty unscathed. Um, but she didn't get as good marks, I think, for her economic management over her over her um, prime ministership. Um, and then in January, she stepped down. Uh, I think pretty unexpectedly, she kind of made an announcement and said she was resigning, and she passed the reins of her Labor Party to a longtime MP and ally named Chris Hipkins. Now, cynics Ethan would say that she jumped ship right before she knew she was about to leave, uh, lose an election. Um, because and I'm going to let you guess this one. Yeah, I, I think it's because New Zealand, like Poland and Ecuador, elected some new blood. It's opposition. Exactly right. We have this theme running of incumbents uh, getting handed their marching orders. Um, and I guess the incumbency advantage does seem to be a thing of the past. Uh, yeah. the, the new blood here um, won't. Win. I'm not. I, I'm not sweating, John. I'm not sweating thinking about <laughs> thinking about 2024. Yeah, exactly. It's an optical illusion. <laughs> Let, let's just let's leave that one there. I think less said about that, the better for for our uh, blood pressure. Um, in this case, though, the new blood in New Zealand won't win by much. Um, I think it was a pretty tight election in the end. Um, but it seems that the Conservative National Party, uh, led by a guy called Christopher Luxon, will be able to form a coalition in Parliament um, with another Conservative Party in New Zealand. Um, and, and I think what's interesting here is is to give you a sense of how much Labor's support collapsed in this election. They they won fifty percent of the overall vote in in twenty twenty. Um, but they won just twenty seven percent of the vote this time around. That's that's a that's a precipitous drop. It's pretty clear that voters were ready for a change. Yeah. So so what do we know about Christopher Luxon? Well, I'll be honest. I didn't know anything about him um, because he's a relative newcomer. He he only entered politics in twenty twenty. Um, so the last parliamentary elections, he he got elected, uh, and he pretty quickly rose to the ranks uh, to to lead the National Party in twenty twenty one. And now, obviously, he's going to be the next prime minister of New Zealand. He was a bit of a known entity to New Zealanders, I'm told, because he was the former CEO of Air New Zealand, which is the country's you know, flag-carrying airline. Um, and it must be a pretty good airline too. I've not flown it in a long time, but it must be pretty good because I'm not sure that any other country, particularly not the US, Ethan, we wouldn't be in a rush to elect the uh, the CEO of American Airlines if, if, <laughs> if my most recent experiences on, on AA are anything to go by. I think, I think it'd be the opposite. We'd send them to jail. But Luxon ran on you know, a pretty classic conservative platform of lower taxes, um, you know, fighting crime. Um, he interestingly said, and, and again, I'm not an expert on this issue, but he, he was talking a lot about reforming the country's healthcare network, um, particularly for the indigenous Maori population in New Zealand, because he, he says that that creates a two-tiered society between, you know, non-indigenous and indigenous um, uh, Maoris. So I think that's interesting. Um, but, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see how he governs. Um, and most importantly, I, I think 
whether he can kind of bring down New Zealand's six point seven percent inflation rate. Yeah. That 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 probably won him a lot of votes. I think. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's fun to kick out the old guard, but you know, you're expecting the new guard to make changes. These are not exactly. easy problems to solve. John, that that last bit about the Maori actually is a, is a perfect transition for our next and last country, Australia, which held a referendum on the voice this weekend. First of all. What is the voice? Yeah, well, I know, I know, I know what you want me to say here because yeah. <laughs> you, you, I, I feel like someone on our team, I'll, I'll, I'll pretend it wasn't you. Once, is that a singing show? It's like yeah. I'm here to tell you, it's not the singing show. Um, <laughs> same name, different thing. Uh, the voice actually was a, a very, a very important proposed change to Australia's constitution that would have recognised the sovereignty of, um, and I'm going to say our because I'm Australian, but our, our First Nations people. Um, by essentially creating, and again, it's pretty technical, but creating an advisory uh, an advisory body to the Australian Parliament, which would advise lawmakers, parliamentarians, on how proposed laws would affect, uh, you know, Indigenous interests. Um, so really, kind of putting Indigenous issues into the minds of lawmakers as they're going through the process of governing Australia. Um, the process, uh, sorry, the proposal is a little. I think it's a couple of years old now, um, but it wasn't. It hadn't been brought forward for a referendum by previous governments because they were conservative and, and, you know, they didn't want to bring this issue forward. That changed when uh, Anthony Albanese became prime minister in 2022. He's from Labor, the left-wing party in Australia, um, and he endorsed the voice um, and, a schedule, and scheduled the referendum um, to have a vote on the issue. And that happened on, on, on the weekend. Um, after months of campaigning, and I think it was a couple of months in the end of campaigning, the voice was really comprehensively yeah. rejected uh, by, I think, a nationwide margin of around 21 points. And, and again, very quick digression to pass a change to the constitution in Australia. You need to have a majority of individual states vote for the amendment um, and also a majority of people across the country to vote for the amendment. And it didn't pass in a single state. It didn't win a single state, and it lost the national vote by a significant margin. So it, it was a route. It wasn't wow. close. Not a single yeah. state. I mean, that that's a huge loss for supporters of the Voice, but it's also a huge loss for Albanese, who was became the the spokesperson. You know, a, a big advocate for this cause. Is he in trouble? Could this spell trouble for his government? You know, I think you're right. I think by tying himself to this issue and then being so roundly defeated that. The, the kind of conventional wisdom would be that that is a, a damaging political blow. And right. it may well be. My, a referendum on him. Yeah, right. And I think that's probably fair. My gut still says it's probably not going to be. He's got support within his own party. He's relatively newly elected. The previous government was in power for such a long time that I think it's probably a little bit early to kind of say that he's on the ropes or anything like that. But I think it'll certainly you know, affect his popularity um, and what he's able to achieve. Um, you know, I, I think if I might step back for a second, what I find interesting about this is that over the last few years, over the, over the, over the kind of campaigning period, um, public polling kind of showed a ton of support for The Voice. This was like a, a relatively popular idea. Um, in fact, I think... As recently as last December, over sixty percent of Australians said they'd vote in favour of the voice. Um, but you know, I think what we saw happen over the weekend was in large part driven by what we kind of see elsewhere. People are concerned about other issues, um, and you know, it's not that they can't do m multiple things at once. But it, 
I, I think that they're not paying the kind of attention that a constitutional referendum requires people to really be up in arms and really care about this thing. And I think this is kind of was maybe seen as a little bit of a sideshow. Right. I mean, there there was there was some slogan. There, there was a slogan that said uh, from the no side, "If you don't understand it, vote no." Yes. This was just sort of a, a convoluted, confusing issue for a lot of voters. I think that's, and I think they were pretty successful in making that argument. I think. Again, those on the ground in Australia, and obviously I'm, I'm not there, um, they might have a little bit more to say about the tactics of the no side. I, I think there's wide claim, uh, widespread claims of you know, mis- misinformation, sorted tactics, that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I think ultimately, again, being in Australia, I think we're just fairly resistant to change. Um, you know, in my lifetime, we've we, we've rejected um, one referendum before about becoming uh, uh, getting rid of the British monarchy. That was re- um, that was defeated as well. So I, I think we're just like not boat rockers. We're kind of, if it ain't broke, why should we fix it? And and of course, again, without going into the details of Indigenous issues in Australia, most Australians have no idea of the challenges that are facing the uh, Australia's Indigenous population. Um, and for those who do have an idea, I think they would say that the situation is very much broken and, and very much needs fixing. But again, Indigenous Australians make up about 4% of the overall population. So these aren't issues, as you rightly say, that touch many non-Indigenous Australians' lives in a way that they're really going to sit down and engage and get exercised about. Um, vis-a-vis, you know, maybe maybe the economy is, is something that is far more in people's minds. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes it is as simple as that. And um, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there's not much more to say about it than that. Well, John, a tour de force, four countries... We, we traveled the world together and uh, it was a pleasure. Let's say we do it again soon. <laughs> and that's going to do it for me. By the way, we're still tracking the events unfolding in Israel this past week. Be sure to check out the International Intrigue newsletter for all the latest updates. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.